When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Trashy Divorces. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy. We are glad you're joining us for another edition of our good podcast about bad relationships. And you would, Trash Pandas, be hearing a brand new episode today. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate part of living near a cemetery resting place is that sometimes there are midweek funerals. We have a particularly loud one happening here. You know, a person is being sent off in truly grand style, and we are happy for them and sad for their loved ones who are really doing it up with speakers and everything. And sending all the well wishes into our backyard, and we are using today to present to you something out from the Patreon side. On Patreon every Wednesday, we do these fun things we call spider webs, Mm -hmm. which sometimes are follow-ups on profilees. Sometimes they're brand new stories. You never really know where a spider webs is going to go. But in the effort to make sure that we are delivering some solid content and you get a chance to take a look at what happens over on Patreon.com, we are pulling out of the vault today the Rex Harrison spider webs. Mr. Rex Harrison, King of Pain. Lots of spider webs included in this one. A lot of trashy, trashy vignettes about old King of Pain, Rex Harrison. Some featured players in here, Audrey Hepburn, Julie Andrews, Cecil Beaton, George Cooker, Roddy McDowell, Patricia Neal. I think Swifty Lazar makes an appearance. It's all very exciting. Not as exciting as what's happening in our backyard. I mean, lots going on. (laughs) But as they say, the show must go on. So please enjoy this particular episode from our Patreon Spiderwebs files. All right. And with all of those caveats, Alicia. What should we do now to get on with the show? We should go, go, go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Spider Webs, which seems um, extra important to me. As yesterday, after strolling the grounds... (laughs) Here at Trash Manor, I made you um, check me for spiders as I had walked through um, several spider webs and there were spider webs in my hair and it was unpleasant. Trash Manor. Now I have a big, I have a big branchy stick that I just take with me on my stroll through the grounds here at Trash Manor. Not in your hair. You just take it about the place. I don't put the stick in my hair. No, I wave it in front of me. (laughs) Like Parent Trap. And the click, click, click for bears. Maybe, yeah. Vicky, yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Spiderweb. Sexy Rexy Harrison edition. Oh, my God. I want you to put on your terrible pants. <laughs> like, I need you to put on your crawling through the mud because we're not done. <sighs> Do we need waiters for this one? Oh, my God. He's okay. the worst. Okay. All-star and Hall of Famer. He's literally the worst. Let's begin with the fact of Rex Harrison. This is I've got a lot of vignettes here. Great. Linear, but lots of lots of dishy dishy webs. No Eliza Doolittle ever would be good enough for Rex Harrison. There's no actress 
that would be able to live up to Rex Harrison's standards to play the role of Eliza Doolittle. Two of the most beloved actresses of our time, Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn, both tried and failed, according to Rex Harrison. You only got a Tony. You only start in the film, you fuckwad. All right. Composer, words are going to be hard today. This is how my terrible pants are on. Composer and conductor, Andre Previn. Okay. This is before he marries Mia. So this is back. Mia Farrow. Correct. Okay. That was Mia Farrow's husband after Frank Sinatra was Andre Previn, but that doesn't happen until 1970 here. We're in the 1963 film casting. Andre Previn says, did Rex Harrison want Julie Andrews or Audrey Hepburn for the movie? He didn't want anybody. Whatever fuss was made about Miss Doolittle was pointless because he thought nobody was interested in the girl. As far as he was concerned, the audience was only interested in him. Julie Andrews. Nary a bad word will be said about Julie Andrews in this home. She is starring on the original Broadway production with Rex Harrison. Remember, 1956. Original Broadway run of My Fair Lady. Once shouting, Rex does to Julie Andrews, a punchable face Rex Harrison has. If that bitch is still here on Monday, I'm quitting the show. And then stormed off stage. Cool guy. One of the most popular songs in My Fair Lady is I've Grown Accustomed to Your Face. Professor Higgins sings it to Eliza Doolittle, but Harrison refused to look at Julie Andrews when he sang it. Commenting on the choice of Audrey Hepburn for the film, <clears throat> Rex Harrison said, Eliza Doolittle is intended to be distinctly ill at ease in European ballrooms. Bloody Audrey's never spent a day out of European ballrooms. <clears throat> when the casting... Is he familiar with a thing called acting? Which women can do too. It's, he's such a dick. When casting for the Broadway revival of My Fair Lady in 1980, the conductor Cyril Ornadel suggested they find someone who sounded like Julie Andrews and Rex yelled, Cyril, that's exactly what I don't want. <laughs> Another time during those particular castings, Rex Harrison said, I can't bear any of those suburban girls. I don't want anybody coming in looking or talking like Audrey Hepburn or, oh, oh, or, or, Oh, Jesus Christ. What's her name? The other girl. Julie Andrews. Julie fucking Andrews. Rex Harrison. Okay. A few other My Fair Lady stories while we're at it. It is not well known, but ironic that Rex Harrison was not the director George Cukor's first choice to play Henry Higgins in the film. George Cukor first goes to Cary Grant to play Professor Higgins. And Cary Grant says, there's only one man who should play this, and that's Rex. Any other actor would be fool to try it. Not only will I not play Higgins, if you don't put Rex Harrison in it, I won't go and see it. Uh, Cooper is going to go a little further. He's going to approach Lawrence Olivier and Peter O'Toole about the role first before he goes to Rex Harrison, but neither Lawrence Olivier or Peter O'Toole were available. I mean, it sounds like Rex is a total dream to work with, so I can see why he'd maybe go down the, the that Rolodex. That bitch is back on Monday. Yeah, this is kind of reminding me, just like the just the, the, the deep and unexplored misogyny in mm -hmm. this guy. I saw a thing on Twitter. I can't swear this is true, but it said that, you know, if you ask women what makes a good sense of humor, 
it'll be like, oh, you know, people who make the people around them laugh. That's right. If you ask men, what is a good sense of humor? It, they will say people who laugh at my jokes. Really? Uh, the, I, I wow. don't I don't have a paper to back that, but like something about that was like, I can see that partic- uh, potentially being true. So. Of Rex? Well, of Rex, yes. Just a deep-seated, like, I am central to the universe. Don't take off your terrible pants. It gets worse. Rex Harrison recalls when George Cukor calls him about playing Professor Higgins in the film. One evening, George Cukor telephoned on a crackly line from California and asked me to make a photographic test for the part. I laughed. I'm not making any tests, I told him. You want me to play the part, then I'll come. As a joke. I then sent him some Polaroid photos, which had been taken while we'd been fooling around on my boat, in which I appeared stark naked, holding in one picture a Chianti bottle in front of me, and in another, a strategically placed copy of the New Statesman. You wanted a test, I told him. They saw that I was not as decrepit as they feared. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. Um, flamboyant designer and photographer Cecil Beaton had created the remarkable and iconic costumes for the show's New York and London stage productions. I mean, iconic costume, Cecil Beaton. He works on the show's both New York and London stage productions and was engaged to reprise those designs for the film. But this time, Cecil would make the sets as well. Alan Lerner said of Cecil Beaton, When you looked at him, it was difficult to know whether he designed the Edwardian era or the Edwardian era designed him. That's, uh, that seems fitting, yeah. Juice. Okay. When Rex Harrison discovers that Audrey Hepburn was making double his salary for the film, Rex is not pleased. He's rather unhappy. In his opinion, it was he, and he alone, who had been responsible for the stage and potential film success of My Fair Lady, and he was incensed by the inequity. He was horrible to Audrey at first because of this. When he realized that she was having difficulties, like she wasn't doing great in the role, and the decision was made to have a different singer voice over all of her songs instead of using Audrey Hepburn's real voice, then he warms up to her, but don't think that it's because of any good reason He's just delighted that all of her difficulties would allow him to dominate the film Mm -hmm. and look superior to her. Cool guy. Okay. Uh, This is Andre Previn uh, recollecting the starting of My Fair Lady. There seem to be only two ways to approach any problem, his way and the wrong way. (laughs) When Rex heard I had been engaged by Warners to serve as musical director, he flew into a rage. I won't have it. I don't want him, he hissed at Alan Lerner. For the entire run of the play, both on Broadway and in London, we had Franz Allers conducting the orchestra. Franz knows exactly how I sing and exactly how I speak, my cadences and my rhythms. There's no one like Franz. That's who I want. That's who we must get. Alan persuaded Rex to just try, just try recording a number with me. If it didn't work out, Rex could go to Jack Warner and have me replaced with Franz. So we scheduled a recording of Let a Woman in Your Life, and it went perfectly. Rex had zero problems. The quote is no problems, but zero. The orchestra and I had no problems. The song was finished ahead of schedule. That night, Alan called Rex from New York. How did it go? 
Did you get any of it finished? Rex interrupted him. Yes, yes, dear boy, it was terrific. I get along fine with Andre, and he followed my singing without the slightest trouble. In fact, he was certainly better than that Germanic son of a bitch we used to have in the pit. <laughs> I can't. It is so sad. Oh, that, so bad. Like, there mm. are... He he's he's just he's not replaceable. Why? Previn today smiles at the recollection before delivering his final verdict. Rex Harrison, who gave one of the most transcendental performances ever, was, and I don't say this lightly, the most appalling human being I've ever worked with. He was charming and funny and a great raconteur, but Jesus Christ what he did to people. Rex didn't like Audrey very much. He was mean about her, not to her. That was very much more his style. I think everybody's had some garbage co-workers along the way, but this is just a different level. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? all in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Let me tell you about picnicking with Swifty Lazar while Carol Landis lay dying. I told you to put on your terrible pants. That night that Rex Harrison broke up with Carol Landis in the early hours of the next day before her death, very much a mystery, right? As reported. But we know that Rex Harrison left her house on the 4th of July around 9 p.m. and then called around 1 a.m. It is thought he may have returned in the early morning hours, but that cannot be confirmed. Landis's maid, Fannie Mae Bolden, arrived for work on July 5th, about 9 a.m., to find a quiet house. This was not unusual, though, because Landis often took sleeping pills that made it difficult for her to wake up, like every other actress mm -hmm. in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Around 11 a.m., 
Rex called, and Fannie Mae told him that Carol was still sleeping. He called a few minutes later again and asked Fannie Mae to tell Carol that he would be late for the lunch they had planned. Because Rex was calling from Malibu, and he had driven there with Leland Hayward and Swifty Lazar to discuss a play written by author Maxwell Anderson. The three men had driven to Malibu to meet with Anderson at his home, and Harrison desperately wanted to do the play, but wasn't sure if 20th Century Fox would let him. Then, the four of these dudes, Maxwell Anderson, Leland Hayward, Swifty Lazar, and Rex Harrison, picnic on the beach until 2.30 in the afternoon, when Rex again calls Carol Landis' home. He was told that she was still not awake. Soon afterward, he arrived at Carol Landis's home and asked Fannie Mae Bolden if she had been up to Miss Landis's room to see about her, and she said that she had not. And she told police that after she told him she'd not gone up to the bedroom, he said, well, I think she's dead. Y- yikes. Okay. Do you think he told her to kill herself when they I talked don't. overnight? Nobody, uh, nobody's going to know. Nobody will ever know the uh, details of that story. This seems like something he may have said to her. Well, then just kill you. You know, like, but. It's all bad. Rex, you're leaving me. I'll never get over you. Well, then just kill yourself. Wow. I just. This dude sucks. That he does. All right. Let me tell you about the time that he caused a diplomatic crisis in Italy. Yay. During the filming of Cleopatra in Rome, Rex Harrison had an altercation with an Italian borsaglary. Probably not pronouncing that right. This is a sharpshooter mm. in the Italian army. That's what you want. Gets into an altercation at the customs desk in the airport. He's a sniper. He gets into a fight with an Italian sniper? Uh-huh. At the airport. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Rex Harrison travels with a great deal of baggage, and when asked to unpack his bags, he refused to comply with the sharpshooter officer, Italian officer's instructions. The lengths men will go to to avoid going into therapy. (laughs) The argument escalated, and the yelling became intense, but neither man was speaking each other's language. Rex Harrison was very tall. The Italian sharpshooter was very small. Harrison decided he would use this to his advantage by towering over the Italian sharpshooter and condescendingly saying, you ready for this? And take off your hat when you're talking to me, you pompous buffoono. (laughs) This caused a problem of international proportions when this incident rises to the highest of diplomatic levels. Harrison was detained. And the Italians maintained that Rex Harrison was insulting an officer in uniform, which meant that he had deliberately been insulting the Italian flag. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it was settled without further incident, but only when American officials get involved and make Harrison agree to make a formal apology to the Italian sharpshooter officer, the Italian president, and then the entire nation of Italy. Mm -hmm. I mean, go big or go home. I love also that it was American <laughs> officials getting involved to help out this asshole British actor. That, like, anyway. Oh, goodness. Okay. Let's talk about the Harrison versus Olivier battle. Rex Harrison and Lawrence Olivier were what people today might call frenemies. Hmm. 
there was an intense rivalry and mutual resentment between the two actors. They were extremely similar in many ways, which often caused them to be at odds. Both men had added up here enormous egos. Both were jealous. Both were insecure yet arrogant. And women found both of them immensely attractive. Both gifted actors. They were constantly in competition for roles and acolytes. Their mutual animosity showed itself in many entertaining ways. I don't know if you remember this one. You probably remember it. From reruns, the 1980 film Clash of the Titans. Yes. Yeah, about the Greek deities. Yes. Starred Laurence Olivier as Zeus. Okay. Harry Hamlin was in it, too. Mm. Rex Harrison was offered the role in the movie, but responded to the offer by saying, I'm not going to play a subordinate god to that bastard. I... If Olivier is Zeus... I'm not going to be any other god. Screw that. I see. I'm not subordinate. I can see why the studio system broke down. This just sounds like a fucking miserable situation. And knowing that you can go pluck some 20-year-old waiter out to replace gas bags like this is very good. (sighs) All right. So Olivia, uh, y'all, it's just too much. Lawrence Olivier at the time is running the old Vic Theater. And he invites Rex Harrison to play opposite him in the play The Dance of Death. And Harrison replies, Dance of Death? Only on your grave, dear boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, but who we... raised this man? <laughs> There's an annual party that's thrown by Lawrence Evans at his estate in Chesworth. This is a Tudor home that once belonged to the family of Catherine Howard. Sweet Catherine Howard, Miss Americana and the Heartbreak Prince. Okay, the two men are sitting with their friends at opposing sides of very ornamental gardens. A mutual friend walks up to Sir Lawrence, who looks at Rex in the distance on the other side of the gardens, wearing immaculate summer clothing and a pale cream Panama hat. Olivier then said, good God, is that really that shit Rex Harrison sitting over there? I can barely recognize him. He's gone off terribly. A little while later, the same mutual friend goes to the other side of the gardens that is talking to Rex Harrison, who looks in Olivier's direction and says, I think your friend Lawrence Olivier is sitting over there. I must say he looks frightfully decrepit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we mentioned this in the story, but I don't think we ever talked about how Rex Harrison was rude to his fans. Like, he's rude to his wives, he's rude to his co-stars, but he's rude to legit everybody. One night, after a stage performance of My Fair Lady, an elderly woman is standing alone in the rain outside the stage door, right? Tuppence a bag, and asks for Rex Harrison's autograph. And Rex tells her to saw it off, which so enraged the old woman, she promptly rolled up her program and hit him with it. Good. More of that, please. This is is so good. Fellow actor Stanley Holloway, who witnessed the scene, remarked that it was the first time the fan has hit the shit. (laughs) (laughs) The fan has hit the shit. When he last appeared in stage, on the stage in London in the 1980s, a promising young female member of the cast sought a private word with Rex Harrison and was foolish enough to suggest 
that he was getting a line slightly wrong. Mm. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. He smiled his deadliest smile. Mm. How very interesting to be given advice from quite the worst actress on the English stage. I, I hope she went on to have a long and distinguished and happy career because so. what a dick. And that actress is Emma Thompson. Yeah, now, right? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who it is. But <laughs> one night Rex is at dinner with Alan Lerner, who will write the lyrics for My Fair Lady and his wife, Nancy. Nancy has a mild difference of opinion with her husband at the table about something and said, No, I don't think so. Probably because Nancy's right about whatever it is. And Rex immediately roars back at Nancy, you bitch, who are you to disagree with him? Oh, goodness. Rex Harrison tells his eldest son, Noel, that he wouldn't come and see him perform in cabaret because it would be frightfully boring. Because that's what, you know, the reputation of the show cabaret is. Uh, absolutely, um So Maybe this time, Rex Harrison, someone needs to punch you in the face. So great dad. Dad of the year. It wasn't just fellow Hollywood stars who struggled with Harrison. The actor had been praised for joining the Royal Air Force in a non-combat role during World War II. However, Eileen Younghusband, who was a woman's auxiliary Air Force officer and served alongside him, said, mm. he treated us like dirt. I bet. We were nothing because we didn't have anything to do with his film career. He really thought he was something special. Well, and they were also women. Um, I'm sure, I, like, I'm sure, yes, his military, his male military colleagues, I'm sure he treated like crap, but women? Sounds like he really had a worldview about the hierarchy of things. It gets worse. And he is atop that hierarchy, I hasten to add. It's not just fans, it's not just his wives, it's not just the wives of, you know, the people he works with, or the women in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. It is Noel Coward as well. The relationship between Noel Coward and Rex Harrison was always fraught, but over the years, Rex Harrison begins to absolutely loathe Noel Coward. And the more time he had to think about it, the more he blames Noel Coward for convincing Lily Palmer not to reconcile with him after Kay uh -huh. Kendall's death. It's all Noel Coward's fault. But she had remarried, right? Uh, Lily Palmer, yeah, re yeah. I don't think Noel Coward had too much to uh, do with it. Yeah. I... <sighs> but Rex Harrison will give an interview to Vanity Fair in 1985. This is conducted by Russell Miller. And in it, Rex Harrison says, Noel was a terrible cunt in some ways. Rex Harrison goes on to explain that he hated doing coward plays because it was hard to avoid sounding like Noel. He then said coward was, quote, a lousy actor. Personally, he was mannered and unmanly. Of course, the great thing today is to be homosexual. Then no one can say anything about you. It virtually guarantees discreet press coverage. It's too late for me to change my sexual proclivities, however, far too late. Whatever's such a dick. Yes, 1985 was a shining time to be gay. Uh, <laughs> another, uh... Oh my god, <laughs> a fucking asshole. Ah. <laughs> uh, All right. Got a few more here. Roddy McDowell we are going to talk about in the done and done loop connection when we finish up with Marilyn. But Roddy McDowell will chime in on Rex Harrison. 
Roddy McDowell stars with Harrison both in Midnight Lace in 1960 and Cleopatra in 1963. And Roddy McDowell will say about... Sexy Rexy. Mm -hmm. I'd known Rex since I was 12. He was emotionally unstable, like a wanton child. You always had to approach him with a fire hose. He was an exquisitely impeccable actor, but a basic hysteric and unconscionable to his fellow actors. When they both appear in the Broadway production of The Fighting Cock on Broadway, this is Gene Annal. I can't, I don't know how to pronounce this last name. I'm so sorry. Okay. McDowell describes the experience this way. Rex was all wrong for the general because he could just viscerally not be a victim. Everything in him revolted against it. We had a great scene in which my character made a total ass of his character. It was imperative that he be humiliated in the second act so that he could be triumphant in the third. But he couldn't and wouldn't play it correctly. He was never where he was supposed to be, and I never knew what he would do next. He'd go downstage and mug and try to distract me. Primitive tactics. It was his first Broadway appearance after My Fair Lady, and it ran for a month only because of the advanced sales but it was agony. I have occasionally wondered how actors, I mean, I like, I, I can see that happening, right? Like to, to take on an emotional place that feels incredibly uncomfortable, which is certainly something that good actors are uh, known for. So in the swath of shitty things that we've heard so far about, what people say about Rex Harrison, I'd like to add a few more. Great. Maureen O'Hara, her comment about Rex Harrison, he is rude, vulgar, and arrogant. Julie Harris will say about Rex, I have never met anyone who was so self-centered. Patrick Mackney said, one of the top five most unpleasant men you've ever met. Stuart Granger will say about Rex, a rotten shit, and was so incensed by one encounter that he actually took him by the throat and threatened to break his fucking leg. Outstanding. So, slightly nicer from Roger Moore, Rex Harrison could be a rather mean-spirited man, and he wasn't regarded very warmly by those who knew him. The only decent thing he did was look after my lovely friend Kay Kendall when she became ill. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Rex Harrison calls Noel Coward a cunt. Well, Cecil Beaton, let's go ahead and backhand it back to Rex. Here's my favorite one. Says of Rex Harrison, Beaton does. He is beneath contempt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds like. Okay, I've got one more fun spider web that attaches to Rex Harrison, but it also comes into a bunch of other TD alums that we've talked about. This relates to the Audrey Hepburn not singing in my, like the dubbing controversy. It's not just Millie Vanilli, friends. (laughs) All right. Uh, The dubbing controversy would not go away. At the New York opening, she looked constrained, but put the best face on it for the press. This is Audrey Hepburn. I took singing lessons from a New York vocal coach and pre-recorded all of Eliza's songs. But the final result is a blend. I must say I take my hat off to the marvelous people in Hollywood who twiddle all the knobs and who can make one voice out of two. 
critics don't let up, though. Although miming to a canned voice has long been a tradition of film musicals, I still find the sight of a beautiful dummy singing someone else's head off rather less enthralling, writes Philip Oakes in the Sunday London Telegraph. Hedda Hopper comes in. With Marty Nixon doing all the singing, Audrey Hepburn only gives half a performance. People are ruthless to Audrey Hepburn in this. Others criticize not so much the dubbing itself as the fact that Nixon received no screen credit for it, and the implication was that Warner Brothers was trying to hide the truth. Jack Warner said, I don't know what all the fuss is about. We've been doing it for years. We even dubbed Rin Tin Tin. On the opposite hand, even with all this, Hepburn does receive praise from many quarters as well. When the 37th annual Oscar nominees were announced in February 1965, My Fair Ladies, what 12 nominations, did not include one for Best Actress, and the news at this point was treated like a scandal. Julie Andrews chosen, Audrey Hepburn omitted. This reads the Los Angeles Times headline. Variety was blunt about the reason why and said Hepburn did the acting, but Marnie Nixon subbed for her in the singing department, and that's what undoubtedly led to her erasure. Yeah, I feel like Oscar snubs tend to get, right, like there are things every year pretty much that are are viewed as a snub by the Academy. Um, ben Affleck got snubbed Yeah, with uh, Argo, I think. Maybe. Argo, I really liked it. I thought that was a really good film. It was a really good film. Um, yeah, he picked up a bunch of awards for it, but the Oscars were not one for his directing. Well, Jack Warner's mad. He calls it outrageous and took it as a personal affront. In typical quirky fashion, he thought it was due to the, to the quality of Nixon's singing and released a statement saying, the next time we have some star dubbing to do, we'll hire Maria Callas. <laughs> what the fuck? Let's just torch everyone in... Ugh. So this Julie Andrews, sucks. that was nominated this particular year, is tracked down by the press. And she gives the comment, I think Audrey should have been nominated. I'm very sorry she wasn't. Correct answer. I mean, Jack Warner should have been like, I am so proud of this film that garnered 12 Academy Award nominations. That's lovely. Sure. Like, No, Rex Harrison agrees. Audrey should have been nominated. Here we get a little message from Catherine Hepburn. Mm. Catherine oh, Hepburn Kate. will send a telegram. This is actually nice. This is Kate you, of you'll, hate. Okay, you'll okay, enjoy this. Okay. Kate of hate. Uh, Catherine Hepburn sends a telegram to Audrey Hepburn saying, don't worry about not being nominated. Someday you'll get another one for a part that doesn't rate. <laughs> oh, goodness. Audrey's in Spain when the word of the Oscar snub reaches her and she attributes it herself to the dubbing. The trouble was Marnie blabbed all over town that she was going to more or less save the movie, says Andre Previn. George Cooker, who along with all of us worshipped Audrey, got very angry. He said, listen, you're getting a lot of money for this and you're going to get a lot of money from the recording. Why don't you just shut up about it? Marnie got a little too much mileage out of the publicity. Audrey's the only one who never said anything negative about her. That was beneath Audrey. Marnie Nixon, mess. for her part, denies and bristles at the blabbing charge, as well as the subsequent reports that she was blacklisted for her dubbing in My Fair Lady. But Marnie Nixon says, I was upset that people thought Audrey didn't get nominated because I did the dubbing and that I was purposefully trying to push that knowledge out. 
I did say during the filming of The King and I, the PR department threatened that I would never work in this town again if I let anybody know. But that was The King and I. My Fair Lady was the last film dubbing job I did, but not because I was prevented, only because that era was over and pictures like that weren't being made anymore. Hmm. Whatever you tell yourself to sleep at night, Marnie. Okay. <laughs> it turns out, in fact, the main source of the information about the dubbing of Hepburn was not Nixon at all, but rather the aggrieved friends of Julie Andrews. No one particularly cared when Marnie Nixon dubbed Deborah Kerr or Natalie Wood because Marnie Nixon dubs both of them in singing roles, but they care when she dubs Hepburn, considering it an insult to the injury of depriving Andrews of her rightful role. Remember Julie Andrews, Broadway, 1956. Right. Like, mm -hmm. Julie's friends are mad. And now, holy cats. But in any case... The beneficiary of the dubbing fracas was Julie Andrews, now the highly favored Oscar nominee for her performance in Mary Poppins. The ordeal, though, for Audrey wasn't over. She now was faced with the awards night itself, to go or not to go, right? If she didn't, Jack Warner and George Cooker would be upset, and everyone would accuse her of bad sportsmanship. The decision was soon made for her. By tradition, Patricia Neal, the previous year's Best Actress winner for HUD, should hand out the current year's Best Actor award. But Patricia Neal is recovering from her devastating stroke. Remember, Patricia mm. Neal married to Roald Dahl. Right. Okay. And Roald Dahl like, finds them, like, it's all tear, but it all connects. Okay. Patricia Neal is still recovering from her stroke, so Audrey was asked by the Academy, Audrey Hepburn, to stand in for Patricia Neal and hand out, yeah, the Best Actress Award. Under those circumstances, there's no way that Audrey Hepburn could decline. So George Cooker, frontrunner for Best Director, was Audrey's escort the night of April 5th in the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And George Cougar won, as expected, his first Oscar victory in five nominations over the decades. In his acceptance speech, George Cougar thanks Miss Audrey Hepburn, whose magic makes it so easy for us to win these awards. Most of the other My Fair Lady winners did the same in the course of the evening. I heard you say the word most. All night long. The TV cameras took every opportunity to scrutinize and juxtapose the faces of Audrey Hepburn and Julie Andrews. They're doing split screen. Like, mm -hmm. it's Hollywood. Once yeah. you know what you're looking for. Yeah. Okay. They build up the tension over Best Actress. It was one, Best Actress was, by Julie Andrews, who thereby achieved the instant and lasting film success that Warner believed that she could never attain. After accepting the statuette from Sidney Poitier, Andrews delivers the most acerbic remark of the night. My thanks to Mr. Jack L. Warner, who made this all possible. Good Lord. Uh-huh. Oh, Julie Andrews throws some shade, man. I don't, yeah, mess with her. Her mellower assessment came later, Julie's does. I'll never know to this day whether it was sentiment that won it for me or whether the performance in Poppins really did. This was 1993, she says this, but she adds with a smile, I think it was the sentiment myself. Andrew's triumph and Hepburn's humiliation were now complete, it seemed, and for Audrey, it seemed the worst was over. 
But next up was the Best Actor Award, and she gets a warm consolation reception when she steps out radiantly. Of course, she's wearing a Givenchy gorgeous gown to present the award for Best Actor. The name in the envelope was Rex Harrison, and she reads it out, really beaming with joy, Mm -hmm. kissing him repeatedly when he reaches the stage to take the Oscar from her hands. Harrison seemed as pleased by Hepburn's pleasure as the award itself, and in his thank you, he said, I should actually divide the statue in half to share it with you, ending diplomatically with, I admire both my fair ladies. Harrison later calls the ceremony very embarrassing. (laughs) Warner's publicity department, quote, spent a lot of time and effort trying to keep Julie and myself apart, at least in front of the photographers. It was awful. A make-believe scandal created entirely by the press and the PR. Now, to his credit, Rex Harrison had won over stiff competition. Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton for Beckett. Anthony Quinn for Zorba the Greek. And Peter Sellers for Dr. Strangelove that year. All of whom perhaps actually deserved the Oscar a little bit more. My Fair Lady sweeps a total of eight awards Probably most important was Best Picture. This is Jack Warner's first since Casablanca and Jack Warner's first as a producer. The picture's overall success was enough to let Audrey say, if not too convincingly, this evening made up for everything. She's a class act, Audrey Hepburn. She'd done well to keep a stiff upper lip and survive the night with aplomb. But unwittingly, she capped it off with the worst faux pas of her public life, a lapse of protocol for which she herself was less to blame than the Oscar show writers. I had been told that Audrey Hepburn would bestow the honor in my place, and I couldn't wait to hear all the nice things she said about me, recalled Patricia Neal. But suddenly she was handing Rex Harrison his award, and she hadn't said a thing about me. It had to be a mistake. (laughs) I pounded on the table with my good hand. God, God, me, not me. Neil and Hepburn had gotten along well on Breakfast at Tiffany's. Remember in the rewritten, not Truman Capote's actual script, I don't even know what the film version was, Patricia Neal is playing the uh, lady who has the mistress of... She's she's in the film. They star in the film together. Okay. Worked that out. She's the rich lady keeping the Truman Capote stand-in character. All right. Patricia Neal says today, she was a fantastic woman, really, but I was so angry that she didn't say I'm here in her place. I couldn't say the words. I could only stick out my tongue. Hepburn's failure to mention Neal caused yet another mini scandal. Audrey snubs ailing star, said the headlines. Patricia Neal's author husband, Roald Dahl, was thoroughly outraged on his wife's behalf. When reporters confronted Audrey at Kennedy Airport on her way back to Paris, she was mortified by her oversight and ran immediately to the phone to call Patricia Neal and apologize. Roald Dahl answers the phone and responds harshly, I told her to bugger off. Mm -hmm. I bet Audrey Hepburn just wishes she had taken a month to backpack through Europe that April or whatever. (laughs) Patricia Neal, as time does go by, becomes more magnanimous. The incident at the Academy Awards occurred under enormous pressure and has long since been forgotten, she would say. 
Oh, I'm sure the fact that she was recovering from a stroke just left her in a really good mood. Also, because Rald's his his treatment protocol or whatever was deeply cruel. Audrey so, sent me a fabulous porcelain rose, mm-hmm. which was very good of her. I guess it just didn't occur to her that night. I suppose she was distracted. One never knows how these things happen. God, Audrey just got set up against everybody. It's terrible. I don't know. We don't say anything bad about Audrey Hepburn. She's quite a quite a hero. So is Julie Andrews. Rex Harrison, you're terrible to everyone, apparently. And I want to speak no more of you here at Trashy Manor. Sexy Rexy. That's spiderwebs, angels. That's all I got. Y'all, we adore your faces. Clean hands, trashy hearts. In this life or the next one, if you get a chance to see Rex Harrison, kick him in the knee. Kick him in the other knee. And kick him in the nads. Punch his face, too. I'm sorry, I'm not normally like a resort to violence sort of person. Sure. But that guy. No, he's... I mean, I know some of this is generational. Like, he grew up in 1920s England, right? Something like that. So some of it I, I I get, but he really, like, once he had a position and status, like, just the ego and sense of entitlement and disdain for everyone else's good faith efforts to achieve things, like, what a scummy guy that must have been miserable to be married to him. You may now take off your terrible pants. <sighs> Thanks, everybody. This is where we started this for tuning in to this very exciting episode of Fury Pants Spiderwebs. The sexy Rexy edition. Gosh, punch him. I have to say, when I was pulling up pictures of him to, you know, for the website and stuff, he did not age well. I don't know if no. he was, if he was like an appealing leading man early in his life, but... I don't know. I was just, I was quite surprised. He's, he's not someone just because, you know, of my age. Um, I, he's not a, an actor I'm super familiar with. Like, I don't know his, like you've explained it now, but I didn't know his early career or any of that. Like, yeah. He's not a snack like young Paul Newman. Right. Y'all want to know who's a snack? Who's a snack? <sighs> young John Steinbeck. I'm going to show you a picture, Stacey, cause whoa, it's worth it. Look at the snack. That a young oh, oh, I have seen that picture. Yes, he could walk onto any stage in Hollywood today and oh camera God. ready. Completely yeah. camera he ready. He needs to be in like a Taylor Swift video, right? He could sell Calvin Klein. He could sell, yeah, right? Like young John Snide, Steinbeck. Snidebeck. Snidebeck. Snack. I mean, it's not like, you know, I don't know. Anyway, that's all I got. Now, for the fifth time, clean hands, trash <laughs> damn hearts. We love y'all. Have a tremendous rest of the day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com 
or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.